Let us go to the field and glean among the heirs of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, and that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of her husband, of, of your husband, has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed this young man, saying, let, your glean even, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, uh, whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's pray. Father, indeed, your faithfulness is seen to all generations. And by your faithfulness, so your grace. Bless us now, your people, as we stand in need of this. Give us it in abundance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If I was writing a commentary on the book of Ruth, I would name chapter 1, Love on the Road. And then I would name chapter 2, which is this chapter, Grace in the Field. Because that's what we meet. We meet grace in the field. Now, there are two things I want you to know about grace. I want you to see how to give grace. And then secondly, how to receive grace. How to give grace and how to receive grace. So let's look at the first one. How do we give grace? Well, at the beginning of chapter 2, we are introduced to a man by the name of Boaz. And um, all you really need to know about, Mo, uh, about Boaz, am I saying Boaz, is what is written in verse number four. Who's, uh, uh, what, what am I doing? And behold, Boaz came to Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. That's all you need to know about Boaz. Do you realize there's a lot to be said in a greeting? There's a lot to be communicated in a greeting. Me and my wife went to a uh, marriage retreat, and a number of us went, and um, this woman was talking about the fact that one day she was home, and she was with her dog, and all of a sudden her dog jumped up and started shaking his hip and turning around and jumping up and down, and all of a sudden she realized, oh, my husband's home. And she opens the door, and the dog ran toward her husband, just jumping up and having a good time. And she said that that moment changed her marriage. Because the next day, when her husband came home, she shoved the dog to the side, she ran outside, and she started jumping up and down and shaking her hip and running all around, right? Didn't know I could move like that, huh? Yes. Um, why, why did she do that? Because she wanted to outdo the dog. That's why she did that. She wanted to outdo the dog. Because she realized in her marriage that the dog was showing more love to her husband than she was. She wanted to outdo the dog. And what the dog showed by his jumping up and down and running around and greeting was how much uh, the dog truly loved her husband. And she wanted to outdo the dog. Well, Boaz, by this greeting was outdoing everybody else in Israel. 
this greeting communicated a lot about Boaz. Remember, up to this point in the narrative, every single man that's mentioned in the book of Ruth had a cloud of death and misery around him. But then you get someone like Boaz, and he didn't bring a cloud of misery and death. He he brought a cloud of life and joy. And in a time where he lived, where uh, men did what was right in his own eyes in the time of Judges, now you get a man that came on the scene who was, do, who was after the heart of God, a man, in fact, that the Bible will later tell us was a man after God's own heart. That's Boaz. How do we know that? Because this greeting is a greeting of grace. Boaz was a man of grace and love. And when you have a man who's a man of grace and love, then you could be assured that his field is a field of grace and love. Boaz wasn't driven by profit. Boaz was not driven by wealth. He was a man driven by grace. We don't know if Boaz was handsome. We don't know if Boaz was gifted. But we know that Boaz was a man of grace. And that's why everyone wanted to work for him. That's why everyone wanted to be him. That's why everyone wanted to be around him. And all the ladies wanted to be Boaz's wife because he was a man of grace. And he ran his business with grace. Now, it doesn't mean he never fired anyone. No, if he had to fire someone, he did it with grace. And it doesn't mean that he never reprimanded anyone. No, if he had to reprimand someone, he did it with grace. God used him mightily because he was a man of grace. If you went into Boaz's home, his home reeked of grace because that's who he was. And notice everyone around him knew that. He said, well, the Lord blessed you. That's what uh, the Lord be with you. That's what he said. And everybody else responded, the Lord blessed you. Why? Because, well, they know his character. Now, you know, some of you probably go to work and you don't, you don't hear, may the Lord be with you or the Lord bless you. And that's okay. But you know what? Your home should be a home of grace at the very least. And that's what Boaz cultivated. Now, the text quickly moves on. They introduce you to this man of grace And the text quickly tells us that his grace cannot be contained. Notice what he says in verse number 5. Whose young woman is this? Now, now, calm down. The hopeless romantics inside here is going to say, this is when Ruth gets her Boaz. Not quite. That won't happen until chapter 4. So they'll leave off the romance for right now. But what is before us is that now... Boaz sees an object of grace. Let me explain to you something. When someone is filled with grace, they can't contain it. They're always looking for someone to spread grace on, someone to show grace to. And Ruth was the perfect example of this person. She was an object of grace. And you see that all through the passage. I mean, after she asked to glean in his field, what happens? First of all, in verse number 9, she secu- he, uh, Boaz secures 
Rube's um, security, right? He says, have I not charged the young man not to touch you? That's the first thing he does. He secures her safety. And then notice again at the end of verse number 9, what does he do? Well, he satisfies her thirst. He knew that she had been working hard, and so she, he provided uh, a means for her to drink water at the end of verse number 9. But that's not all. His grace is abundant because what does he do in verse number 14? He satiates her hunger, provides for her food. And then again, if you go down to verse number 15, he soothes her deepest concern, which is, will I have enough to provide for Naomi? The answer to that question is yes, because he instructed his men to take handfuls of the grain and just drop it down so she can have it. And so Boaz gave to Ruth generously, thoroughly, and consistently, because that's how grace operates. It always gives more than what we ask for. It always goes further than we're willing to go. Grace always is supposed to be spread out liberally to all, regardless of who it is. That's how grace works. Now, let's apply this for a moment. Have you ever noticed that if you read the Bible, the majority of the Bible takes place in small towns near mountains and around fellowship meetings. Have you ever noticed that? Well, I've noticed that. And, and uh, if you've been paying attention, that's where we live. Right? Small towns, near mountains, and over fellowship meals. And I got to thinking about that. That's pretty interesting. Why is that the case? Now, I'm not anti-city. Yes, Jesus is in the city, and the city needs grace. But I live in the country. And so I'm concerned about small cities and towns. So when stuff like this pop out at me as I'm brushing my teeth in the morning, getting my kids ready, I kind of pay attention. So what does that mean? What is Yahweh trying to tell us? Well, Yahweh is trying to tell us this. You know, you need a little bit more grace when you live in a small town. That's my interpretation. You know, in a big city, if somebody flips you off, you could always look at them and say, well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And you never have to see them again. But when you live in a small town, no such luck. Somebody flips you off, it's a problem. Right? And so what does that mean? That means when, when we're in tight quarters with one another, we need a little bit more grace. We always do smaller churches, smaller towns, and families. You know, when you're rubbing up against each other, there's always a little bit of friction. And the only way that friction could be dealt with is through a little bit of grace. That's what we need more than anything else. You know, I'm always reading these articles like, how, how do you make a better family, you know? Uh, train confident children, right? Um, have better intimacy. They need more money. No. I mean, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. Don't get me wrong. But what you need more than anything else is a little bit more grace. And a little bit of grace goes actually a very long way because notice how in this text, if it wasn't for Boaz, 
coming to Ruth and being kind to her and generous to her, she would be on the outskirts of the community. In fact, his grace changes her life. She goes from being a foreigner, a Moabitess, to one of the daughters of Israel. And then on top of that, she goes from just a gleaner picking up the scraps to a reaper where she's gathering handfuls of grain. And not only that, what about Naomi? Naomi goes from Mara back to Naomi. So she, she goes from being miserable to pleasant. Now, let me pause here and say this. Whenever us pastors stand up here and talk about grace, we can make grace seem like a magic wand, you know? Bippity-boppity grace. And as if that changes everything. But I'm here to tell you that it actually doesn't change everything. You know, for as long as Ruth and Naomi lived, they're always going to remember the pain of losing their husband. Every now and then, when that season comes around, that, that time comes around, she'll probably start crying. You know, the trauma that they've experienced can't just be waved off by saying, be a little bit more gracious. The reality is trauma runs deep. Now, the thing about grace is grace offers substantial healing, as Francis Schaeffer says in this life. But, but grace doesn't offer complete healing in this life. You know, for as long as they live, they will suffer the trauma of what happened to them. Recently, somebody gave me a book called Spurgeon's Sorrow. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And Spurgeon is a bit of a hero of mine. You know, when, whenever I go to preach, I always ask myself, what would Spurgeon say? Um, and if you don't know Charles Spurgeon, I highly recommend that you do. But Charles Spurgeon, um, in the book, they talked about Spurgeon's sorrow. And what he said about Charles Spurgeon is this, that this famous preacher who was uh, one of the greatest preachers um, in the modern era, that early on in his ministry, as he was preaching, someone yelled fire, and a whole bunch of people ran out and, and died. And for as long as Spurgeon lived, um, he, he wept over that event. In fact, it's said that when Spurgeon stood up to preach, he would have uh, horrible panic attacks. He would get anxious. And the grace of God was seen not in the fact that he got up there and thundered from the pulpit, but that he even got up there to begin with. You know, one of the authors said it like this, Spurgeon never recovered from that event. Some things we never get over. We get through them, we get on with them, but we never get over them. You know, there's some of you that have gone through some trauma in your life. And yes, while grace provides some healing, and I believe grace could provide substantial healing, you will never receive full healing this, this side of eternity. But you know, um, <laughs> I'm learning that his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. And so that's what this text tells us, that there's a grace giver. And even though we all suffer mightily, um, his grace is sufficient.
Now, how do we receive grace? How do we receive grace? Well, look at verse number 10 down through verse number 13. He's shown tremendous grace. And what happens in verse number 10? As she is the recipient of this grace, the Bible tells us that she fell down on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? How does she respond to God's grace? With a tremendous act of worship. Now, two things I want to point out. The first is, um, Ruth didn't feel entitled to this grace. She didn't feel entitled to this grace. Now, now she could. I mean, after all, the law did say that she can glean in the fields. And after all, she did make an incredible sacrifice. And so for her, she could be thinking, well, you know, I kind of I deserve this grace. But, gra- but uh, na- uh, Ruth was not a woman who felt entitled. You know, a, a lot's been written about our entitlement culture. And to be fair, there's, there's an entitlement culture in every uh, society you look in. So I don't want to pick on our generation, but we are kind of entitled. And you know, the worst part about an entitlement generation isn't the fact that we end up being a bunch of narcissistic crybabies that act like brats. That's not the worst thing about an entitlement culture. The worst thing about an entitlement culture is this. You have a group of people who don't understand what grace is. That we'll raise a group of people who've never experienced the grace of God. You know, recently we were reading 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It says, if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself, for the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do you know one of the greatest feelings you can feel as an individual is the feeling of being forgiven? Of grace. And if you believe that you're entitled to everything, how in the world can you experience grace? Have you ever experienced grace? I mean, truly. It overwhelms the soul. It changes the way you look at life. You can't be the same if you've experienced grace because grace is an overwhelming feeling of the soul. That's how Ruth responded. Ruth was not narcissistic. She didn't feel entitled. She knew that she had been the recipient of God's amazing grace, and she acted accordingly. That's right. Because let me tell you, if you do not understand grace, then you won't understand Yahweh. And if you don't understand Yahweh, you won't understand how good he is. That's the fact. Well, it said something else. It also tells us that uh, that, um, Ruth didn't believe in chance. You know, uh, every now and then I go online and I see people talk about, you know, things like chance, like karma. You know, like, oh, this just serendipity. Look what just happened to me. And you almost want to, like, write back, like, no, actually, it's not karma. It's not your horoscope. It's not anything like that. It's called providence. 
Because this didn't happen to her by chance. This happened to her by the intentional act of Yahweh. When I was a, a young man, I, uh, one of my first jobs ever was I packed groceries at a local grocery store. And uh, after we packed groceries that night, we had to restock the shelves. And there was a young man there who was somewhat entrepreneurial, and he had a little gambling ring going on. And, uh, and his, his, uh, his ring of choice was flipping coins, and he was pretty good at it. In fact, he won uh, a number of times. But it didn't take us long to figure out something was amiss, and we figured it out. Uh, he was cheating. And that day, I learned two things. The first is, it's foolish to gamble because the house always wins. But the second thing I learned that day is that there's no such thing as chance. R.C. Sproul, in his wonderful book, Not a Chance, introduced me to a term, and it goes a little something like this, ex nihilio nihil sit, out of nothing comes nothing. Your life isn't governed by chance. It's governed by the holy conductor, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who authors everything according to his plan. And as he conducts all of our lives, he'll let this come in and that go out. He's behind the scenes, bringing everything to its perfect completion. That's what scripture tells us. That everything that happens to you is the result of an intentional act of Yahweh. Now, um, how does this relate to scripture? How does this relate to Christmas, I should say? Well, this, this will have to be the big takeaway. Um, last week, uh, we sang the song, Joy to the World. And the fourth stanza says, He rules the world with truth and grace. Have you ever, have you ever, yeah, you've probably heard that. Have you ever thought about that? That he rules the world with truth and grace? It's one of the greatest lines ever. What does it mean that he rules the world with truth and grace? I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And then it dawned on me, again in the bathroom, again brushing my teeth. That's where my best ideas come. <laughs> he rules the world in truth and grace. What does that mean? It means this. You know, sometimes if you think about grace, it seems too good to be true. It seems too good to be true. Does he really love me like that? Does he really forgive all my sins? Does he really care for me that deeply? You mean to tell me, Pastor Dennis, he's not upset at me because I've changed my major two or three times? Do you mean that he's not upset at me because I haven't gone to college yet or finished college yet? Is he angry with me because I keep sinning in the same way every time? Is he really faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness? Yes, yeah, sometimes grace seems too good to be true. That's why we have to be reminded that he rules the world with truth and grace. And what Christmas tells us 
is that Jesus Christ is the vehicle for that truth and grace in the world. Isn't that glorious? We live in a world where Yahweh rules with truth and grace. And you can live in light of that truth and grace. If you've never experienced the grace of God, I urge you to. Because you live in a world where Yahweh rules with truth and grace. Father, we're thankful that you do. <laughs> I'm thankful that, um, that you do. Be with us, your people. We are beset with many ills, sin, anxiety, frustration, and anger. And what a comfort it is to know that you rule with truth and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.